go to your computer, you turn your computer on, you wait for it to boot up, comes on, you start to do your work and you run into some sort of an issue, some sort of an error with the computer, and you're unable to fix it yourself. It doesn't matter what the error is, but you're unable to fix it yourself. So you pick up your phone and you call tech support. Now any of you that have been in this situation before know where this is gonna go. The first thing that tech support tells you to do is they're gonna say, let's go ahead and turn your computer off and reboot it. Let's start it over again. And so you're gonna go through that process. Well, in our passage today, we're seeing Israel go through a similar thing to that. You see, Israel had been in slavery in Egypt. They cry out to God, you know, bring us out of slavery. So God sends Moses. They go through the plagues. He brings them out of Egypt. He brings them through the Red Sea, destroys Pharaoh's army. They go to the Sinai. They get their covenant with God. Uh, they receive the law, the, the tabernacle, all, all of the, the things that will go along with them. Then they go to the promised land to go possess the promised land that had been promised to them. But they don't go conquer the promised land because they send spies into the land and the spies come back and say, oh, there's no way we can do this. The, we, the people are too big, there's too many, we're too small, we're, we're not equipped for this. It's impossible. And so the people rebel against the word of God. And so God punishes them and he sends them into the wilderness to wander. And in essence, he reboots Israel, turns them off. That generation that rebels against him passes away. None of them get to enter into the promised land. And now in Joshua, here they are. They come to the, the promised land. We saw in chapter 1 that they receive, Joshua receives the commission, becomes the leader uh, of Israel, goes and talks to the people, tells them what they're going to do. We're going to go into the land. They send spies into the land. They meet Rahab. We see the, the mercy of God exhibited to Rahab. And now here they are ready to cross. And they're going to go through the Jordan just like Israel went through the Red Sea. And, and God will connect it to that event. He'll say in chapter uh, 4 that just as you went through the Red Sea, you're going to go through the Jordan. And they're going to get to the other side, into the Promised Land, just like they went to Sinai, received the covenant there. Once they crossed the Jordan, they're going to recommit their covenant, and then they're going to go receive the land that had been promised to them. So that's the story. We read it. We understand it. But the New Testament church, us as Christians, often we have a hard time dealing with the Old Testament. We don't know what to do with the Old Testament. We'll read it. And we go, okay, that's a nice story. You know, and this is what happened to Israel. And, and sometimes we can just read it as a, you know, the chronology, uh, uh, the events that took place all the way up to where we're at now. But if we do that, we kind of miss the point of it. Other times, we turn it into just a simple moral lesson. Okay, hey, look, God told them, you know, to, to cross and, uh, you know, uh, he talks about courage a lot, so we just need to be courageous and, and you know, listen to God and, and just do what he tells us to do. And we just turn it into some sort of a, a moral lesson. Sometimes we'll turn it into an allegory or if we're a little bit more refined, we'll say it's a type. 
you know, and there's anti-types and types, and, you know, and, and we'll look at a story like this and we'll say, you know, they go through the river and it's, a, it, it's symbolic of the baptism and we see the 12 stones and it's the, the 12 apostles and, uh, you know, and, and we turn everything into this allegory. Or we'll just ignore it. We'll say it's not relevant. There's some preachers today that say, oh, we don't need anything from the Old Testament. It, it, it doesn't mean anything to us. It's not speaking to us. It was, it's something that's past. We only look at what's new and what's fresh. But I would say that that's not acceptable. You know, in 2 Timothy, we're told that all Scripture is profitable to make you a complete Christian, a complete person. It doesn't say that everything that was written since Jesus Christ is acceptable and, and profitable, but rather all of Scripture. And it's not profitable just to have some knowledge, just to have some uh, understanding of what went before us, but rather to make you a complete Christian. So in our passage today, we have to approach it. We have to say, what are we to learn from this? At looking at Israel going through the Jordan and just kind of these weird things that are going on and they're going to set up a memorial of rocks and, you know, what are we to do with this? And I would say that actually this is one of those passages that's kind of good because it's got the application within the passage. I mean, God's pretty explicit about the application and better than that, there's a direct application for us. God actually gives the application for every one of you sitting here today, explicitly. He's going to say, this is what I want you, New Testament Christians, to know from this event. So we're helped by that. Yeah, and so we approach Scripture, and we got to, when we look at the Old Testament, we always have to ask, what was the author intending? Why did he write this story down? What was the purpose behind it? What were the original audience supposed to learn? And then likewise, what are we supposed to learn from it? And it's not just going to be a moral lesson. It's not just some sort of secret code or allegory or type that we have to crack and figure out. It's not that. There's going to be some sort of a theological point, an understanding that God is trying to convey to us. So let's look at our passage, and we'll look at chapter 3 and 4 today. So with Psalm 119 and all of chapter 3 of Joshua and all of chapter 4, you're getting a lot of scripture today. You know? We're not even going to charge you anymore for it. So each chapter is going to have kind of a central focus. Chapter 3, we're going to see the Ark of the Covenant is going to take kind of center stage. And then in chapter 4, we're going to see this memorial of these, these 12 rocks is going to take center stage. And so those are going to be kind of the two focal points that we'll look at. This Ark of the Covenant and then this memorial that God tells them to set up. So let me go ahead and read through chapter 3 and then we'll talk about it. So it says, chapter 3, Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people. 
as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet, there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go. For you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow Yahweh will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Yahweh said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of Yahweh your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of Yahweh, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priest bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away, at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, the, and those flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So here we have the command to, to go. We're going to cross the river. And we can have all sorts of discussions of how did the river stop? Was it a natural thing? Did, they, did he dam it up? Did he use an earth? It doesn't matter. It says that God stopped the river. It was a supernatural event. It says he heaped the waters up. So uh, you can almost imagine it was like a, a dam of water holding back water. It makes no sense, right? And they cross over on dry land. I mean, this is land that had water flowing on it. Suddenly the water's not there and the ground is dry. That's not how rivers work. Rivers stop flowing, the ground's still muddy, soft. You get stuck in it. So all of this that takes place is a supernatural event. The water stop, the ground is dry, and the people are easily able to cross over. And they follow the Ark of the Covenant. 
And what is this Ark of the Covenant? This is one of those things that, as Christians, we get thrown off by because we don't have an Ark of the Covenant. We don't have it. We don't experience it. We've never seen it. There's no pictures of it. And we don't know what to do with it. You know, we, we kind of understand it. We can read in, in Exodus about its creation and building it. But what was it? Think in a Hebrew mindset, in a Jewish mindset, you're following this Ark of the Covenant. It, just think of its very name provides a good description of it. It's the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. So it was given to them at Sinai when God makes a covenant with them. Here's my covenant with you as a nation, and here's the Ark. And the Ark is where you're going to approach me. It's going to be this representation, this physical manifestation of my presence with you. The law is going to be held within it. It's going to have a lid on it. And the offerings are going to be centered and focused around the altar and the ark. It was a symbol of God's holiness. You know, we, we see at times when people touch it and they're not supposed to, they die because they're not holy. You know, the ark was this symbol of God's justice. You know, when the ark was stolen by the enemies, you know, bad things befall the enemies. As long as Israel protects the ark, does what they're told, you know, and follows the rules and the law that God gave them, they find success. It was also a symbol of God's mercy. The very cover that sits upon it, we translate as the mercy seat. It's where the blood was poured. It's where Israel found mercy from their sins against God. So this Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh symbolized all these things. God's sovereignty, His, his power, His rule, His justice, His mercy, and the covenant that He had made with Israel. And so here it says in verse 4, that they're supposed to keep a distance from it. And I can't tell you how many commentaries I read here that go into all sorts of, of detail and you know words and paragraphs about how they had to maintain this 2,000 cubit length away from the ark because the ark was holy and the people needed to stay away from it. I would say that all those commentators are wrong. That's not the reason that God told them to stay 2,000 cubits away from the ark. Why do I say that? Because God tells you right here why he wanted them to stay away from it. He says, do not come near it. Not because it's holy and you're not. Not because you might die if you touch it. No. In order that you may know the way you shall go. So imagine this. Well, let me give you an illustration. You've got a wagon, and you have six horses that are pulling the, the wagon. Those six horses are two of them, two more in front, and two more in front of that. And you need to entice your horses because they're, they're not obedient horses. And so you have a carrot on a stick. And you, you take that stick, and if you dangle the, the carrot right in the middle of the horses, so above like the two horses that are in the middle, is that going to work? Like, then the horses are all kind of trying to figure out what's going on. 
you know, two of the horses sort of see a carrot bouncing off them. They don't know what to do. No, you take the stick and you, you, you push it out further so that the carrot is out in front of all of the horses. And they can all see that carrot out in front of them, directing them where to go. And this is what God's doing to Israel. He says, Israel, I want you to stand back. And I want this Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh to be separated from you so that all of you in the nation can see it and see what is about to take place. Because I don't want there to be any sort of misunderstanding of, yeah, well, he just kind of walked into the promised land. I'm not even sure how we got past the Jordan. You know, we just walked. It must have been some sort of a bridge or something. No, he wants them all to be back so they can see the Ark go into the water and the water stop miraculously, the ground dry up, and realize this is where we're going to cross over. You know, again, that ark stood as this manifestation of Yahweh within their presence. And so he wants them to understand, I, Yahweh, am leading you into the promised land. I'm the one bringing you through the Jordan. It's not your smarts. It's not your military. It's not your engineers building a bridge. It's me providing a way for you to cross through this river. I want you all to see it. I don't want any of you to miss it. That's why he says keep 2,000 feet away. Because he wants them to understand that as we go into the promised land, you're following me. I am directing your path. I am guiding you. I'm leading you. And so they cross over. Chapter 4 says, When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, Yahweh said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of Yahweh your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel just as Yahweh told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up the twelve stones that came from in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priest bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that Yahweh commanded to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. 
The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of Yahweh and the priest passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before Yahweh for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, Yahweh exalted Joshua in the sight of Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they'd stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And Yahweh said to Joshua, command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, come up out of the Jordan. When the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of Yahweh came up from the midst of the Jordan, the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground. The waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For Yahweh your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. As Yahweh your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear Yahweh your God forever. So now he tells them, I want you to set up a memorial. He's going to tell them, I want you to take the the 12 stones, one that's going to be representative of each of the tribes, and you're going to bring these stones out of the river from where the priests were standing, and you're going to carry them, and you're going to set up a memorial at the place that you encamp tonight. That's going to be Gilgal. Now, there's some confusion, because sometimes in in verse 9, it gets translated kind of weird. And sometimes it can read like this. It'll say, in Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan. And so then everybody gets confused. They go, well, there was one memorial within the Jordan, and then there's another memorial at Gilgal. So now all of a sudden you have two memorials. Again, tons of ink, gallons of ink spilled on trying to explain the two memorials and all of that. And let me explain it this way. There's one memorial. He, He tells them, In Hebrew, he says, I want you to take up the 12 stones, understanding that we're in the midst of the Jordan, not setting them up in the midst of the Jordan. Why would Joshua set up a second memorial within the middle of the Jordan? God didn't tell him to do that. God told him, set up one where you're going to encamp. Joshua is not going to start out this reboot of Israel by disobeying God and setting up a second memorial. It makes no sense. And it goes on, and there's only one memorial that's recognized, one that's a Gilgal. So whenever you read about two memorials here, it's not. It's just one, a Gilgal, that God had commanded them to establish. So what was the purpose of this memorial? Why did God tell them to do this? 
So there's three reasons that God says why I want you to set up this memorial. He says in verses 5 and 6, He said to, uh, and Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of Yahweh your God in the midst of the Jordan. Pick up the stones, carry them out. Why? That this may be a sign among you. So it was to be a sign to the people of Israel, a remembrance of what took place. So when you pass by Gilgal, you're, you're going about your business, you're walking down the road, you know, it's 20 years after this event has taken place, and you see that stack of stones there, and you're going to go, yeah, that's those stones that we brought out of the Jordan over there when God brought us into the land. Look at where we are now. 20 years on, we've conquered the land. God's fulfilled his promises, made you know, his covenant with us, and fulfilled those covenants. So it was to be a reminder to Israel. Second, he says, that when your children ask in a time to come. What do those stones mean to you? You, know, you can imagine you're driving down the road with your kid and there's you know, some sort of a sign on the side of the road for some sort of roadside attraction and your children ask, what's that, Dad? And you explain to them, it's this or that or this sort of a museum. Well, this is the same thing. You're walking down the road. Dad, what's with the rocks over here? Oh, let me tell you this story of what Yahweh did for us. But that's not where God ends with his application. Verse 24, God reaches out from this event, and he reaches out to the rest of the world. So he's already said, Israel, here's the application. I brought you through the Jordan so that you know who I am, that you remember who I am, so that you know what I've done for you, so that you remember being brought out of Egypt, that you remember coming through the wilderness, that you remember the, the conquering of the promised land. Don't forget who I am. But then verse 24, he reaches out to the rest of the world and he says, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of Yahweh is mighty, that you may fear Yahweh, your God, forever. And this isn't just for Jericho and the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Canaanites. and the. This is also for the Americans, the Koreans, the Chinese, the English, the Germans. All of us today are part of this group of all the peoples of the earth that are not Israel. So when we read this and we say, what's God's point here? God tells you His point that you may know that the hand of Yahweh is mighty and that you may fear, that you may trust in Him. You see, this is exactly what the Red Sea was for too. When they crossed through the Red Sea, God did it so that Israel would understand who He was, that Israel would respect and fear and trust in God, and so that the rest of the world would know Who's this Yahweh that Israel worships? It, you know, the Red Sea was essentially God, you know, stepping out onto a world stage and announcing his presence. I'm Yahweh, the God of Israel. And we saw in chapter 2 
that that's exactly what happened. Rahab says, yeah, we know who you are. We know what your God, Yahweh, did. He brought you through the Red Sea, destroyed Pharaoh's army. He brought you through the wilderness, conquered other armies. And now you're sitting here on the borders of our land, and I, Rahab, am terrified. Because that God, Yahweh, and she calls him by name, Yahweh is here at my doorstep. So for us today, we have the same decision to make. We read this, and we recognize that the same God that brought them through the, the Red Sea, across the wilderness, through the Jordan, up to the gates of Jericho, and demands a decision from those people has demanded a decision from us. Because you're presented with the story now. You're presented with Yahweh, with his power. How do you respond? Do you respond to it like Rahab and say, yes, I fear Yahweh, and I'm going to trust in the power, in the promise-keeping, in the covenant that, that Yahweh made? Or... I'm going to respond like the rest of Jericho, and I'm going to hide behind my walls, and I'm going to ignore Yahweh, this Lord of the earth, and I'm going to try and make it on my own. It doesn't turn out well for Jericho, and it won't turn out well for us if we reject the mercy offered by Yahweh. So what do we do with this passage? We don't turn it into some just moral lesson. It's not an allegory about baptism or the church or any of those other things. It's simply God reinforcing his power with his people, showing them who he is. Look, everything in this world I control. I control the rivers. I control the, the land. I control everything. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to fulfill the covenant promises I made to you. They're entering into the promised land because of a covenant that he made with Abraham before any of these people were alive. He makes a covenant with Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to give you this land. He's made them a great nation at this point. Brings millions of people out of slavery in Egypt and brings them to the promised land. He made another covenant with them at Sinai. Here's the law. Here's how I'm going to interact with you as a, as a nation of people. Here's what I want for forgiveness. They're going to cross over into the land, and he's going to exhibit that power through their crossing the Jordan. They're going to set up a memorial to remind them of what Yahweh did for them. How long is that going to last? You go to the next book of your Bible, and you hit Judges. And Judges is an absolute catastrophe. As encouraging as Joshua, the book of Joshua can be, Judges is a hard, hard read. I mean, there's no way they could turn it into a television or a movie. You just could not do that with Judges. There's depravity, there's murder, there's mayhem, there's rebellion against God. It doesn't take long for all these people to ignore the stones that they had set up to ignore the God that had brought them out of slavery, that had brought them through the Jordan, 
to forget all of that and decide to make their own way. They saw what happened to Jericho, and still they said, eh, we can do it better. So for us today, we've been given a memorial too. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, in the Old Testament, God makes a covenant with Israel. And in that covenant to Abraham, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you the promised land. But I'm also going to bless the entire world through this covenant with you, Abraham. And this new covenant we see here in Corinthians is that blessing of the Abrahamic covenant to the entire world. That Jesus comes to be the Passover lamb, the mercy seat for us, the one to, to bear the wrath of God, to to receive the punishment for our sins in our place. You know, Israel had just a shadow with the Ark of the Covenant and with the, the Passover and with the, the sacrifices that they did. They had to keep redoing it every year, over and over, all sorts of animals being killed because those animals were not sufficient to pay for their sins. Yet here comes Christ, who is sufficient to pay for their sins. Proclaim the Lord's death, who died for your sins, to make atonement for you, to provide mercy that had been promised, to bring the blessing that had been promised to Abraham, that had been promised to Israel, to bring the blessing to the entire world. What are you going to do with it? And that's what communion is. Communion is our 12 stones in Gilgal. Dad, what is that? Why, why do we do that? What, what are those rocks there for? Communion takes the same position. Why do we do communion? It seems kind of weird. Why, you know, little tiny grape juice and crackers? It makes no sense. It's a reminder of what Jesus had done for you so that you don't forget because it's so easy to slip into Judges, to go from Joshua to Judges. So God gave us a remembrance. Here's this communion. This will be a sign for you to remember what was done, to remember the death of Jesus Christ. So we have our memorial, communion. And we have what supports that new covenant is his fulfillment of the covenant to Israel. He makes the Abraham a covenant, the Sinai covenant, and he fulfills those things. 
God is this promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. So when we look at our new covenant, we can find satisfaction in that. We can find a security in that. That we can turn to God, this Yahweh over the entire earth, and we can say, yeah, I'm going to fear you. I'm going to trust in you and I'm going to believe in you. I'm going to place my faith in the Lamb that you sent.